Hello and welcome to another city-centric podcast from Centric Lab. We hope you are all well and all healthy out there in the world. For this episode, it is the third in a three-part series of our conversations with the Cash Campaign Group. Cash stands for Clean Air for Southall and Hayes, and it is a citizen-led campaign group based in West London. And for those who are not familiar with London, it's a predominantly residential area very close to Heathrow Airport. We've been engaged with the campaign group for around a year now, supporting their work, and we wanted to amplify their story, which is a case of environmental injustice, racism, and social inequality. Their story started in 2017, when neighbours started reporting problems breathing. A putrid gasoline-like smell had invaded the air, causing all sorts of problems to local people. Citizens noticed this happened to coincide with the construction starting on a former gasworks site that had sat behind a row of homes on the edge of the local canal. The site in question is a former gasworks site owned by National Grid PLC, a once nationalised utility company that subsequently followed suit like others similar to it and became a private entity and eventually floating on the London Stock Exchange in 1995. As sites like the one in Southall became redundant due to technological innovations, it weighed up plans for what to do with them. Sites like these are costly to redevelop, but the company was able to benefit from the uplift in land value brought on by the city's housing crisis, and in 2014 established a joint venture with the housing developer Barclay Group called St William. According to a press release in 2014, launching the venture, it stated that St William had a proposed portfolio of 33 brownfield sites. The first group of 18 will develop 200 acres of redundant brownfield land and deliver 6.9 million square feet of development, creating approximately 14,000 homes and over 40 acres of open space. Around 20 of these sites are in London in established residential communities. In Southall, the site was first refused planning permission for redevelopment by Ealing and Hillingdon councils over fears and concerns regarding the increase of vehicle-based pollution in dense residential areas, and that the development programme had not taken this into account sufficiently. The scheme was called in by the Mayor of London's office, the Greater London Authority, which was run at the time by no other than Boris Johnson, and permission was granted, overruling local government policy with little regard to the impacts on the local community. From a structural perspective, What has become apparent is that the UK's planning system is not broken in its failure to deliver housing, but to protect citizens. Environmental, social and health impact assessments required on schemes such as this fail to dutifully protect existing residents, considering stresses like these as the price to be paid for living in cities. And despite citizens campaigning for years, nothing has been done to make their lives easier as they breathe in chemicals such as benzene, amnaphthalamine, carcinogenic chemicals that should be nowhere near people and the homes they live in. The planning system's policies over what is safe has been proven to be redundant, unethical and a convenient thing for people to hide behind, as every organisation from the local council's planning offices, to the Public Health England, who set guidance on such matters, to the development organisation have said that the toxins were in safe limits. No one is taking responsibility, yet people are sick, are being hospitalised and living in a perpetual state of stress. A predominantly low-income community of mixed ethnicities are suffering and no one is protecting them. Instead, organisations responsible hide behind outdated policies to enable housing delivery, apparently the most important thing in our society. Now, actually, 
I want you to introduce more about your relationship with cash. Um, okay, well, as you already mentioned, <clears throat> our relationship with cash specifically, Angela Fonso started a, a little bit over a year ago on Twitter. We were fresh out of publishing a report on PTSD in urban environments where we had discussed various factors that can cause structural violence and thus trauma on different communities. Um, one of the factors that we identified were communities that were living in identifiable, identifiable sorry, toxins in, an, in their environment and then what ensues. So by identifiable means that there is something sensorially that the community can identify as a new toxin, usually that is driven by a smell. What ends up happening is that the community has the constant feeling of danger, then there's the psychological, sorry, the physiological experience. So the discomfort of the odor itself, the respiratory difficulties, and then the hospitalization. But then there's also the witnessing of neighbors getting sick, their families getting sick, they themselves getting sick, and yet still getting no answer. Then we also have to look at how this causes anxiety and anger as a community begins to be gaslit by authorities. And by authorities, I mean the people that are that are causing the toxins themselves, scientists and environmental agencies who throw their hands up and go, there is no correlation or specifically there is no direct causation between what you are experiencing and the toxins that are in their environment. And so when I saw what was happening um, to Angela and to the cash community, it really sounded like a cookie cutter experience from what we had written and discovered of this community in Louisiana called the Cancer Corridor. So this community for the last 10 years has been gaslit and told that their rising and disproportionate rates of cancer, respiratory problems, and other um, ailments has nothing to do with the fact that they live right next to various toxic industrial plants. And so what do they mean by when they want something um Correlate, uh, correlatory or more specifically a direct link between human and the stru- uh, and the environmental stressor. Usually that takes a longitudinal study or it takes an autopsy to be able to understand the toxicity levels in a person's body and then thus their cause of death. However, biology isn't a input-output mechanism and that becomes very difficult to say with absolute uncertainty that one led to the other. And this is the loophole that various companies around the world hide behind. However, equally, they also cannot hide and tell us for certain that the toxins that they pump out into our system have nothing to do with our poor health. So we need to start moving away from these loopholes and not allowing them and not waiting for this exact evidence when there is plenty of qualitative evidence. And by qualitative means the experiences and the data that is coming from many of these communities who begin to um, create journals or begin to log the experiences that they're having due to the, the toxins. So that is valid evidence. That is scientific evidence. 
um, that we need to start taking into consideration. So this is why we wanted to interview the <clears throat> the community because we wanted you guys to hear what it's like to live at South Hall. What are the experiences that this development has um, has ensued on this community? Um, and also to eradicate this myth that we're only going to move and change policy until we have exact evidence that a toxin is 100% related to a person's death. And at the moment, we have a grandstand trial, or I should say um, legal case, um, that on air pollution. And again, it's the same story, being asked for exact quantitative evidence and completely dismissing the qualitative evidence. In this episode, we will be hearing from Joe, who is the main journalist for The Guardian, covering the story of cash of the cash community. She will be talking about her role as a journalist and as well as the role of journalism in general in reporting environmental justice plus the need for an updated lexicon to report on environmental justice within the UK. So Joe, to pick up on what Sufian said of the risk assessment and that people might just see it a home and they don't see everything that's going behind it, the pollutants, the risk, the gentrification, what do you think is the role of press and of telling these stories? How do we get that richness that Sufian just talked about into the, into, into the wider ether? Um, I think it's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, when I started looking into this story, I saw it myself as a kind of a small, as a local story. I live in Ealing, as I've told you before. And I was curious about what was going on there. And once I started to talk to people and looking to it further, I, I couldn't believe really what I was discovering. Um, and one of the main things was the Public Health England sort of blind response to people's um, complaints that they were sick. Um, and one of the difficulties in taking that story to editors was that they wanted health. They wanted proof that, that, that people were sick. They wanted... Um, concrete evidence that something really was going on here, which, of course, we don't have, I couldn't have as a journalist. And I think that's some, that's a challenge that journalists always have with these kind of stories. That Someone will always say, well, yeah, people are telling you it's all anecdotal evidence, isn't it? But, but I mean, isn't this just hysteria? Isn't this just people talking? Um, so that was one of the challenges. But I think um, that, you know, I... I talked to so many people then, it was becoming quite clear that also that the Public Health England assessments were were very questionable in, in several ways, which you've touched on in your report and also um, scientists have also alluded to. I think the the difficulty for, for journalists in a way is that there is no... We haven't been very good in, in the UK about reporting on environmental racism or health injustice as a concept on its own or as a topic on its own. So those those issues are buried inside stories, deep inside stories, and, and that means that people might tend to overlook the patterns. 
Um, and I think it's quite hard to get the attention. Um, it's quite hard to get the focus on on particular stories like the Southall story and also at the same time say, look, this is an example of environmental racism, this is an example of health injustice, or how, you know, this is um, something that we need to look at as kind of thematically. And in in some ways, I think that the Southall, what, what's happened with the Southall story, as I see it, that as it sort of started with a small grassroots group complaining about a local issue and how now the cash group has become really at the centre of a much, much bigger campaign, sort of raising awareness of all kinds of issues. Um, I, I'm thinking, I think a lot about where does this go next and how how can, um, how can I as a journalist um, try to bring that story into sort of a bigger you know, use it as a way to to um, really highlight the, the issues that are beneath the surface here for the benefit of cash and everybody else in the Gasworks Communities United group, but also just as something that's for the benefit of everybody, really, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you, Joe, for that. Um, if we can go a little bit deeper on what you said about over in the UK having that vocabulary on environmental injustice, environmental racism, because we're we're seeing that as a yes, as a as a wider phenomena that um it, it the the vocabulary isn't there yet in terms of possibly if you compare it to the US where the weathering effect has been around since 1992, which describes the effects, the biological effects of environmental racism. The first environmental racism case in the United States happened in the 80s by an African-American community. Um, number one, do you see this as one of those landmark cases of really exposing what environmental racism looks like in the UK? And then B, why do you think there is that knowledge gap um, well, I think here we've tended to, when there has been any sort of focus on, and I know it's not exactly the same thing, but it sort of overlaps, say, health justice, it's tended to focus here on access to healthcare services. That's been a, a focus of reporting here. So if we've talked about people being deprived of, of health justice, it's been um, that they, they don't have equal access. And that's obviously something that's still really important and it will be important as the vaccine is rolled out and all that kind of thing. But but only, to me, only um, now with coronavirus, it's kind of interesting that what's the coronavirus pandemic has kind of coincided with what's happened with this sort of, um, I think, really significant as you say, landmark environmental racism, health injustice case coming to the fore, is that it's sort of, the coronavirus has exposed that health justice, environmental racism are, are much more about the disparities that exist because of other factors as well, overcrowded housing, um, financial pressures, all those kinds of things that we've talked about. And so, um, why we have why that hasn't really been a topic and why we don't have the vocabulary vocabulary I'm not sure but now there really isn't any excuse not to have it because yeah. it, the genie is out of the bottle now so the 
I mean, somebody has described, I think it was um, Onka Sahota, the GP who described cash as a pathfinder um, in terms of the way that cash is going about pushing forward and trying to illuminate these sort of weaknesses and dark corners in the planning system and the lack of proper regulations with remediation and also risk assessments, etc. But I, I, I was thinking about this today. I also see cash as, as a group that has to kind of smash down the door, you know, in a sense, um, and say, you know, this is a case of environmental racism. This is where health and justice exists. And in some ways, cash, I think, um, and the, 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 the wider group needs to sort of try to incorporate that vocabulary more perhaps to to get it out there. I mean, one encouraging sign, and I was going to say this to you, um, Araceli, in case it's of interest to you, is that when I, I was started looking around today and I saw that the, um, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has put a call out for people to contribute, to, to take part in a health justice hub. Uh, have you seen that already? Yeah, Josh the reporting well. project next year. I, I was telling Angela about it earlier, and I thought, wow, that so this is now becoming, and I think on the back of COVID, uh, on the back of COVID, this is becoming something linked to environmental racism that people are starting to slowly talk more about as a as a topic in its own right. And that's 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 good. That's a really positive sign. Yeah, a hundred percent it is. Um and it and it needs everybody talking about it, right? It needs um, the community is talking about it. It needs us as scientists to talk about it, and it needs um, journalists to talk about it as well. And then the last thing that I wanted to point out, and, and again, do a little bit of a deeper dive, is on this idea of anecdotal evidence. Um, through working with you guys, we really uncovered the insidious nature on both the science side and then equally on the on the reporting side of it that a person's experience needs to change from anecdotal to valuable, valid intellect and data. That it is not just happenstance and in, in that we have to get rid of, because that also is part of structural racism, right? We can't wait until this white professor, which is usually the case, a white male professor to come and say, yes, it, I qualify this experience as, as, as a health hazard. We don't have the time to wait for that. And do you think it's a question of scientists maybe working closer together with, um, with journalists? So I was contacted the other day precisely about how, how, do, how do we bridge that gap? What are your thoughts on that? Um, that of how do we bridge that gap and give communities um, the importance, because that, that's the thing that I see. There is nothing different between what Angela and Sufian say in terms of their experience at what I can say as a scientist. It's exactly the same level. I'm just going to measure it with something else, if that makes sense. So how do we create that, that level playing field so communities get their stories I think, there, I think there could be sort of more rigorous challenge to some of the sort of guidelines from scientists themselves. For example, the, the sort of very woolly interpretation of various standards that Public Health England has. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's also room for 
um, I mean, in their, their assessments, they've said repeatedly, um, and, and this is perhaps a, a separate issue, but they've acknowledged that there's it's unpleasant, there's an odour, that it can bother people. And I think, why, why are we accepting that that's okay? Why are we accepting that this that this experience for certain people is okay. For other people, it wouldn't be okay. So there's a kind of a health justice, I think, also should take in sort of well-being and, and mental health, just mental health as well. Because, um, you know, I think it's almost like the, they've been held up as the, this, the standard bearers, but really, as you've proved with your report, that it, the, science, the science that they're relying on falls apart very, very easily. Even the, the 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 levels of naphthalene, et cetera, that they're referring to have changed meanwhile, um, and they haven't referred to that. So it's, I think then it's hard for journalists to to probe that kind of stuff on their own, really. And it's certainly hard for freelance journalists. I'm a freelance journalist because you're always you're always waiting for a moment when you can pounce in a sense where something where you have something that somebody else doesn't have. Um, but I think there's definitely room for for more cooperation, yeah, more collaboration. Yeah, I agree. No, it's been it's been it's been great and uh, great teaching um, to to have been able to collaborate with you through through this process. And I think it's been um, we need more of that, of, of yeah. to, to get that language right. And like I said, prioritizing the intellect that is coming from a community because our experiences are valid. All science does is comes with a different tool to measure it. That's all. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, it shouldn't negate the, the experience. Let's not leave necessarily just on the doom and gloom because what often gets dismissed and ignored is that these are communities. These are communities with wonderful stories and happenings and people. Can you guys just take two minutes and tell me how, why does South Hall feel like home? How would you describe it as your home? As you know, I'm not a Southall resident, although I live a few miles down the road, and um, I grew up near near to Southall in the same area where I lived. Lived abroad for many years and then returned. And this experience of going back to Southall a lot and meeting lots of people has been a real eye opener in many ways. And also, um, I've loved the friendly welcome that I've had in Southall. Um, but it's been kind of an interesting experience because where I live in West Ealing, which is probably three or four miles up the road, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody else, um, there have been various campaigns against Ealing Council here as well. And the sort of character nature of the campaigns has been very different from the campaigns in Southall, I think. And I've noticed that a lot, that there have been... So there's been a campaign here against high-rises, a local campaign against the council... Um, which they actually managed to block a, a 24-storey tower nearby. And there were lots of people, a lot more time on their hands, a different sort of professional networks, and perhaps easier to, to sort of organise in some ways. And I've, um, yeah, I've found that, that, well, I feel I've made friends for life through this campaign. 
Um, I have a, a huge amount of respect for Sufian and Angela and other people that I've come to know. And also, I've also learned, I have to say, a, a little bit more about racism through, as a white person, being involved with cash and, and seeing how they're experiencing it on the receiving end in Southall. So it's been, been an interesting experience. Great. Thank you, Joe. That was our conversation with Joe. Araceli, you've been in conversation with Joe for as long as you have with Angela. Uh, and I was wondering if you can expand more on your comments about the lexicon around covering issues of environmental injustice. Yeah, so one of the, the first, well, the main reason why Joe and I came into conversation is because she wanted to get more evidence um, of from a scientific perspective. And that came from, of course, a higher mandate um, that we can't, you know, that they can't publish something that doesn't have evidence. And that's the part where we really have to unpack. What do we mean by evidence? Because if we're waiting for the authoritative figure of science, which is usually a white man, does that also play into structural racism? Because their voice is the one that we're waiting for whilst ignoring the voices of people that are going through this experience. And that's where I think we need to spend some time in what is qualitative and what is quantitative, but also the different roles, right? So that quantitative data or quantitative evidence is always good when you're about to make a very specific or minute decision. And by that, I mean, so for example, taking the cancer corridor, you would need evidence of what are the different types of organ failures that happen when exposed to these types of toxins. So you could then set the appropriate healthcare um, interventions for that uh, deterioration. However, to change policy, you don't need that level of scientific evidence, nor do you need it to be able to make a report. And it's just a constant pattern that 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 I'm seeing emerge based on our research, whether it's the cancer corridor in Louisiana, whether it's Flint, Michigan, or whether it is now here in the UK as as cash that we it's like the the play the waiting for Godot like what are we waiting for in order to act in that wait is continual sorry sorry in that wait the system continues to enact structural violence on those people and i just can't find how that is ethical and how that is the right use of of science and or journalism what do you think oh obviously i agree i think what i want to perhaps come back to you or ask you on is where is the difference between or what do you see as someone who was um raised in the united states of america and has been living in the united kingdom for 20 years uh you know the united kingdom has been a perpetrator of uh, environmental injustices uh, around the whole of the united kingdom as well as the world uh for for centuries but it does appear that the United States is far further ahead 
on the topics of environmental justice. Is there, where, where do you think Britain is immature in its conversations on environmental justice? Well, this is also something that Joe is very passionate about, um, is getting, bringing the vocabulary from the United States. So environmental justice, environmental injustice, and environmental racism are uh, words and framings and language from the United States. Now, a lot of what comes out of the United States often gets adopted over to the UK. So for example, Black Lives Matter started in the US. Now there's a Black Lives Matter in the UK. And maybe it works that way around for various structural reasons. One being that the UK has done a very good job of hiding and denying the way that they structurally oppress people. Um, and, and again, this is something that I think Joe has done an amazing job of uncovering and bringing us that lexicon in, um, into, into the UK. But again, it's an, it's just another, um, branch of this justice tree that we're going to have to look at, which is how do we better tell the stories? How do we have better language to tell these stories And how do we validate the expertise and the scholarship that is coming from these communities? Yeah, I I just want to like recap to perhaps a conversation we had with someone else about introducing the concept of anti-racist planning and anti-racist planning reforms. And they were bringing up the point that, you know, this is the first time they had really understood that terminology but I think as you pointed out to me and and I think to the others that this is something that has been discussed in the United States probably since the late 60s I think you were saying Angela Davis was a lead protagonist in that phrase of anti-racism and anti-racist planning uh, urban planning in this way and therefore it almost goes to highlight the point that the planning system in this way is structurally racist because its absence of even discussing these issues since a civil rights movement and since well, civil rights movement in the United States, but since the UK's own civil rights movement, that in 2020, for most professionals to not understand that there is such a thing as an anti-racist planning agenda is to acknowledge that actually it is a structurally racist because the absence of the communication only just goes to show there is so much of a problem that we need to address here that the UK in this way is incredibly immature or conveniently immature in its conversation and so hopefully what we have all experienced over 2020 and hopeful change will change in 2021 I think that's my kind of little window of hope that people are now going to wake up but as much to see that you know, this is what people are saying. There is an injustice because you don't even understand something that has been around for about 50 years now. Well, just to make a correction, Angela Davis didn't coin anti-racism because of the planning industry. What my point of that was is that within the civil rights movement, um, housing quality and environmental justice was very much part of the agenda. Um, and also in the Black Panther movement, 
um, empowering through community and through uh, betterment of infrastructure was also um, a pillar to 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 the civil rights movement. Um, again, going to the the sorry centering um, black scholarship in this journey to environmental justice. So it's been around for a very long time. Um, here in the UK, you guys have had those same injustices, but they were enacted on white poor people. Um, and you, I mean, you guys have had a problem with poverty and health for centuries. Um, and, and it's now making sure that we are up to date with, with the vocabulary and, and the language and, and it's giving a massive props to Joe for not giving up for, for pushing for the story to, to come out and for pushing all of us in, in getting those right words, the right words that hopefully will start create cha- creating change for the people at cash. Yeah, just on that point, you just reminded me of something that Angela said and actually talking about Sufian, who raised this point about people who live in polluted areas. Did they move to a polluted area because they were poor or was their area polluted because they were poor? Mm -hmm. I think that's a very prescient point. And uh, maybe just to end there. And if you do want to follow up with Joe's work, uh, Joe Griffin is a independent journalist uh, working for The Guardian. And you can find all of her articles on The Guardian by typing in her name or generally around air pollution to see a selection of work that she has uh, produced. So, um, Araceli, thank you for your time. And everyone, we will speak to you soon. Mm -hmm.